0: about you but my head is spinning with all of these challenges that higher education and college athletics right now I almost don't know where to begin a lot of folks are focusing on whether student athletes from the spring sports will be able to continue to get um, eligibility in the future some are just concerned about their students who have gone online and how they're managing the transition whether they have access to conditioning and strength and nutrition and psychological services And some students are just worried about whether they can get online to get to their classes. There are a lot of competing issues here that uh, can overwhelm us if we're not really careful. So I recently wrote a piece for Forbes about uh, some ideas and some some strategies that we have taken in the past that may not work this time. And then I want to offer some solutions. So one of the strategies that schools have typically tried to Address an impending enrollment drop or concerns about whether students are going to return is they just simply add more sports teams, surely we need a lacrosse team, surely we can have a track team that'll that'll help us shore up our you name the issue kind of situation when you, if you if you needed more male students, you would add football if you need a larger team to offset the football team, add women's rowing but there are fewer high school graduates starting to graduate from high schools in 2020. And this is a trend that we're going to see over the next eight or 10 years. So knowing that you can't just roll out a team and offer it without being competitive. And when I say competitive in terms of coaching staffs and schedules and facilities and travel modes, those kinds of things are going to be make the difference when you're competing for students. It's no longer just a division one athletic facilities issue. The second question I'm oftentimes asked is why can't the individual states just bail out the athletics programs? And in fact, West Virginia university's president Gordon Gee was asked this very question by USA Today. And he said, not in this age of coronavirus. In fact, our university will not be able to bail out the athletic program because the university itself will not probably be bailed out by the state budget. So where are universities supposed to come up with the backup plans? I've heard CFOs on other podcasts, associate athletic directors say, well, in the past, the university's been able to to manage our deficits. I don't think we can expect that anymore. Um, Understanding where higher education is right now in terms of state funding is really critical. And I want to try to crystallize this for you. Governors are elected to drive many things, of which one of them is to make sure that they have taxes coming in and money then to spend and invest back in the states. The only way taxes come in is through a variety of taxes that none of us like paying, but they are things like income taxes, property taxes, sales taxes. If you look where we are right now in the coronavirus situation, if people are losing their jobs, we don't have income taxes. If people aren't spending money in the economy, either because they don't have it or because their local economy is shut down. We don't have sales taxes. So states and municipalities are going to be hard hit by this opportunity and what governments are going to focus on is how do we get the economy back. Bailing out higher education falls on a really low rung well after that. We're also noticing that The Pew Social Trends has identified a partisan divide between Republican state governors and Democratic state governors. Democratic state governors on one hand tend to be more uh, sympathetic to higher education, see it as a lifelong value, Republican governors less so. Uh, You just have to look at the state that you're living in to get a chance to see how your your government might trend in this particular uh, situation. Um, We have seen that the um, uh, members of the Senate have asked for more stimulus be directed to states and local governments to this moment in time. There has been no uh, movement on that. So that's another reason why we can't expect somebody like that to come in and bail us out. Um, If you're trying to think about the different announcements that have come out, there have been layoffs and furloughs, but there's also really some some key thought leaders who are thinking outside the box and trying to think what can we do in this situation there's been a fair amount of that about higher education but i want to talk about what athletics can do conference commissioners coaches associations and other staff should try to be part of the solution right now and you should not just sit on the sidelines worrying while while alumni might not be able to immediately offer a financial donation to help bail you out or give you some sense of calm at least explaining to them how different this world is today with regards to how athletics and what it might look like on the other side of this uh, coronavirus pa- coronavirus pandemic is important. They have ideas in their own heads about their own experience. And that I would imagine that many of them are thinking that the, the experience of today's student athletes looks like their experience. You and I both know that it's very different and helping them understand what those what that new reality looks like is important. It's also really important that as you check in with your athletes, as you check in with your coaches, that you be realistic with them. I see a lot of people talking about mental health and wellness and stress and that type of thing, but it is really stressful not to know. And it is okay to say to your coaches, your student athletes, others, Hey, I don't know. And I really, I'm trying to think what's around the corner. And here's what I do know in the situation. I think people appreciate honest, straightforward leadership in this time. And I think it's important for you to convey that not only to the people who work for you, but their family members and also the athletes and their families as well. Also, and this is really hard to keep your eye on the ball on this, but be mindful of the impact that this pandemic is having on youth sports. And their hopes and dreams right now are completely upended many of you well know that we have an established pipeline in this country of youth sports whose sole focus is to create opportunities to get a college scholarship that has been blown up in most of the country and those families the ones that you're recruiting the ones that you want to recruit are not even sure what to do the simplest solution for many of them seems to be maybe we'll just take a gap year we don't have enough money coming in one or two family parents got laid off and perhaps we'll just sit this one out. The, the athlete is thinking, I want the full college experience. I don't know that I'm gonna get it with an online experience this fall. So all of those youth leagues and organizations are really thinking about why do we exist? If there's nothing for us to drive our, our athletes towards in terms of a, a college scholarship or of ending college experience, then why do we do this? And when we open up again, what are we, what, what are we organizing our philosophy around? these are unprecedented times you cannot negotiate with a pandemic none of us knew know what the new normal is going to be but i can give you one piece of advice that my i've given to my students use this moment to broaden your skills and to try new things you may fail miserably like the nba espn h-o-r-s-e horse competition for for uh, basketball shots Failed in my students' eyes. they thought it was just a miserable experiment. It's okay. That's what we have to do right now. We have to try out different opportunities. But please take the time to laugh at all the funny things surrounding you and look for sports competition anywhere you can. Thank you. My guest today on the podcast is Dr. Pamela Bruzina. Dr. Brezina is a professor and director of nutritional sciences in the graduate studies program at the University of Missouri. She also is the faculty athletics representative for the athletics department at the University of Missouri, a member of the Southeast Conference. This brings her squarely in the crosshairs of discussions surrounding student athlete welfare. And today we're going to talk with her more about that. So Pam Brezina, welcome to the podcast. When you and I were introduced through a mutual professional colleague, it was because of our shared interest in athlete data and privacy issues in the digital landscape. I know your day job is a professor of nutritional sciences, but you have recently accepted a position that has an impact on the University of Missouri's Division I athletics program, that of Faculty Athletics Representative or FAR. Walk our listeners through what that role entails. Sure, Karen, and, and
1: first of all, I just wanna thank you so much for this opportunity. It's uh, really great to get to be a part of your your podcast. Um, the Faculty Athletics Representative is a position that um, is kind of under-recognized. I think a lot of faculty don't even know that we have an FAR, but it is a role that's required by the NCAA of all um, institutions that have athletics programs. And the NCAA Prescribes our responsibilities as um, overseeing academic integrity, institutional control, and student athlete welfare. And so, really, how each faculty athletic rep um, implements those responsibilities depends on sort of the culture of their institution and what um, support they're provided from their president or or chancellor. Um, I'm really fortunate that I have a very supportive chancellor so I've been given some course release to 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 vote to this role and which is within each of those three responsibilities I have a lot of, of varied activities that we can delve into if you'd like.
0: Well, that's great. Uh, and, and congratulations. Are, you're appointed by the chancellor. Is that correct?
1: Yes. And that also varies from institution. Um,
0: you, you're typically appointed
1: by the chancellor, but then the term varies. So here at University of Missouri, it's a five-year term with the option of being uh, reappointed a second time.
0: Okay. Okay. So let's start with the interactions you have with the chancellor. Tell us a little bit about what they entail.
1: Sure. So I have regular monthly meetings with the chancellor and I attend those meetings with the director of compliance within athletics and it's really our opportunity to update the chancellor on um, what's been going on in athletics and in my world which overlaps academics and athletics. So typically I'll be updating him on changes to um, our academic integrity policies and procedures or going over um, exit interview reports or student-athlete experience survey reports, um, updating him on some feedback I've gotten from faculty counsel. Um, really, each month there's always something um, important to talk about.
0: And do you do that uh, each month for 12 months or just during the typical academic year?
1: It's each month for 12 months, so I'm fortunate that I've been given um, summer support, which is good because there is a lot of activity in athletics during the summer.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I would think that would be a gaping hole if you didn't. Yes, it would be, for sure. So I find it interesting that the uh, director of NCAA compliance comes along with you. Um, What kinds of issues does he or she bring beyond the typical, yes, we've had these reports, no, we've had these reports, that type of thing?
1: So, yeah, it is interesting. And, um, you know, that's sort of historically how it's been set up. And if you look at our organizational chart, um, the compliance department has a dotted line to me, um, and to the chancellor. And so, um, I have weekly meetings with our director of compliance and our associate director of compliance. And so you're right. We're talking about, um, you know potential rule violations that they're that they're filing. Um, a lot of the the policies related to academics that I'm working on, I'm working on them in conjunction with compliance. Um, really, we're working a lot of um, the time together as a team. So it just makes sense that we would meet with the chancellor together. And of course, if I want to, you know, feel the need to have a meeting with the chancellor, completely. Um, Independent of athletics being present, I can do that and, and I have done that.
0: So, does your compliance officer also have a dotted line or a straight line reporting to the general counsel's office?
1: We do not. They do not have a, a reporting line to the general counsel's office, but okay. that's a good um, um, point that you make. We do engage them um, quite often. When we have, <laughs> you know, questions that require their expertise do come up,
0: and so we do consult with them as needed. Sure, sure. So um, now the next uh, piece of the athletic department that you would interact with, I would think would be academic counseling. Uh, I would think the athletic director. Tell us a little bit about those interactions.
1: Sure, so yes, uh, to do my job, uh, the institutional control piece of my job, I really need to know what's going on um, in athletics. And um, of course, to make it, clear to faculty that I'm not part of athletics, but to really know what's going on. So our academic support um, department has um, meetings twice a month and and I attend those meetings. And so there I'm listening to what's going on in academic support, what issues they they might be facing, but then also updating them on our um, policy and procedure enhancements um, and really, you know, creating that I'm part of that team. So I I work very closely with them. And then I meet uh, monthly with our athletics director and our deputy athletics director, who's also our um, senior woman administrator. So sort of similar meetings to what I have um, with the chancellor. I'm updating them on, on the similar um, topics and, you know, of course, getting their, their input and their feedback on things.
0: And I assume that, The athletic director has a direct reporting line to the chancellor or Correct. Okay, so they don't have a day to day chief of staff that they report to it's directly to the chancellor.
1: It's directly to the chancellor. Yep.
0: Okay, Okay. so it's a lot of just information sharing information gathering and (laughs) making sure that folks are on the same page.
1: It is a lot of information sharing, and and you know people ask me, well, what does the far do? And so I explain that the NCAA requires you have one and three responsibilities. But then another way of describing it is that I'm a liaison between academics or campus and athletics. And you know even though I'm the faculty athletics rep, I I convey knowledge and information, as you said, both directions. And um, that is an absolutely essential. Um, function for things to to work like they should.
0: I know when I worked at the University of Minnesota it was not uncommon to see our faculty athletics representatives and at the time we had two in and out Uh of the athletics building uh (laughs) daily daily I I wanted to we had time to teach class.
1: (laughs) Well yeah and and we we uh our policies don't allow which makes perfect sense don't allow the far to have an office in the athletics building. So I am, like you said, I am also over there a lot. Oftentimes we, I'm, um, you know, I have a break between meetings. I'm in the, the quiet study room with the student athletes. And I'm working on my laptop. So yes, right. I spend a lot of time over
0: there. That's, that's amazing. So we talked about the academic side. Um, talk about the conversations that you have with the members of the faculty Senate. Is there a, uh, also a an athletic subcommittee of the faculty senate, you know, those kinds of um, groups. Sure. So um, we
1: call our faculty senate the faculty, our faculty council, and I am actually meeting with them this afternoon. I meet with them uh, twice a year, and um, the topics that I'm updating them on vary. I, I try and be responsive to what they want to Um, hear about. So for example, this afternoon, uh, we made some enhancements to our course clustering policy, and they wanted to learn more about that. Um, Last spring, um, the SEC had changed their alcohol at competitions policy, and we were talking about making some changes here. So um, we talked about that. Of course, we um, review the academic progress of the student-athletes Um, And then for a while we had an ongoing academic misconduct case. I was updating them on that as as much as I could. So what I talk about really um, varies quite a bit. So we have the faculty council and then faculty council appoints faculty to what we call our intercollegiate athletics committee. So that committee has faculty and staff and it's um, an advisory committee to athletics and then, within that committee, we have different subcommittees that are chaired by by faculty, and that group meets quarterly and it's um, sort of the the chance for that faculty group to interact with the athletic administrator. so we have the athletics director there the s w a and then the like the academic um the athletic director for academics for compliance, the fiscal person um and it's it's really sort of that that more um in-depth interaction between faculty and athletics administrators
0: right a broader subset of administrators yes exactly uh can you give me an example of one of those subcommittees what they might be focusing on sure so i actually chair the um, compliance
1: subcommittee of that group and so we have been focusing on changes in legislation So a couple of years ago, there was what was called the time demands legislation, which was um, passed to give student athletes some more, um, I hate to say free time because they don't really have free time, but it was, uh, that was the intent and to make sure that they were getting at least 24 hours notice um, for any schedule changes related to athletics. So we talked about that and and, um, tracked on that, we're educating faculty on that and then this year we are tracking on the um, and last year as well the change the student-athlete transfer process so going from um, permission to contact to the transfer portal and and looking at how that's impacting um, student athlete transfers and and long-term outcomes and things like that and then we have other subcommittees that are sort of doing similar things in whatever their domain would be sort of um, looking in depth and then, you know, reporting back to the the larger group.
0: Any early takes on this uh, transfer portal um, uh, uh, process that has emerged over the last 18 months to two years? So it's interesting.
1: We have not seen any um, significant changes in the number of student athletes who are transferring. Um. I know when I went to the Far conference last fall the NCAA is, is um you know interested in using the transfer portal as a way of gathering some data so they were going to be looking more in depth at like when a student athlete enters the portal how that um impacts their long-term academic outcomes so I think um it's kind of too early to tell the, the long-term effects of of the transfer portal, but at least for us, we weren't seeing big differences in the numbers and, and our numbers were similar to um, that other SEC institution. So it doesn't seem like it's having a huge impact as far as just number of student athletes who are transferring.
0: Yeah. There's some members of the media that have been, you know, quite um, vocal about the fact that they think <laughs> this is going to upend squads and create, uh, uh, create all kinds of uh, conflict within the teams because if you're yes. there, you'll, you'll transfer away. You haven't seen any of that.
1: No, we, we have not. We have not seen that
0: at all. So one other area that I'm curious about whether you, how much you interact with is uh, the board of trustees. Uh, how does that work in your role?
1: So I am not involved in, um, the, you know, So the face-to-face meeting with the, our board of trustees, we prepare um, a report um, that's presented to them annually, and our athletics director and director of compliance are the people who attend that meeting to um, present that report, and we're part of a system that has four institutions and the board of, of we call them curators, our board of curators has prescribed what they want um, in that annual Um, report. So I'm, I, you know, see what goes into that report, but I'm not directly involved in reporting to that group.
0: Okay. Okay. And how do you feel about that? Would you like to have more interaction with them or you feel like your day job's pretty full as it is?
1: Um, I don't think it would hurt for them to, um, for me to be present in that meeting. I think that it helps to, you know, sort of put a a face with a role, um, and to know that that um, I am here <laughs> and, and doing my job. Well,
0: that makes sense. And you mentioned one other thing before we kind of leave the campus the campus topic. But you also mentioned that you you try to seek out interactions with student athletes. Is that harder to do? Is there a more formal uh, a venue for you to be able to have regular conversations with student athletes?
1: Yes. So um, the more formal venue I have for interacting with student-athletes is through our SAC organization, which um, I'm sure most institutions have a SAC group, a student-athlete advisory council group. And then we also have um, a couple of other leadership groups. And our most recent one is for first-generation student-athletes, and they've called their group Champions Adjust. And so I worked with with them a little bit, mostly with the the leaders of that group and um, something that they really wanted and we were able to um, get the chancellor to promise it, we haven't actually had it yet, is they wanted um, graduation sashes that denoted first generation um, students and not just for student athletes, but for the whole student body. And the chancellor being a first generation student um, thought that was a great idea, so um, we're pretty excited about that, for them to be recognized in that way. Absolutely. Um, yes. And then the other formal interaction I have with student-athletes is um, when they're, um, they've they used up their eligibility, or if they transfer, I do one-on-one accident interviews with them, um, just gathering information about their experience, positives, negatives, things like that. Um, and I always I always say to the student athletes like I wish I had an opportunity to have these kind of conversations before you were walking out the door, right? Um, because right. Yeah. You, yeah, yeah, interacting with student athletes is is something that I really enjoy. But you're you're right, there aren't a lot of uh, formal ways of of doing that built into this role.
0: And my final question along this vein is you have then all of your colleagues who are FARs in the SEC conference. How do you interact with those folks?
1: Yeah. So they're a great group of of faculty. Um, And even though we're fierce competitors, you know, on football Saturdays, they're a really good group of colleagues. So we have in-person meetings three times a year. And then um, we have email conversations, or sometimes even phone conversations, and we we really are there to support each other. So lots of times, somebody will you know put out a question of, um, "What's your policy on course clustering?" or "What's what's your policy on independent study projects?" And then everybody will will kind of um, chime in. So we do a lot of um, sharing and, and sort of picking each other's brains of, of how, how other institutions handle particular um, situations or issues.
0: You've mentioned this term course clustering. Oh, you want to explain what that is to our listeners? Oh, absolutely. So um,
1: we run a report every term that looks at how many student athletes are in a particular course or in a section of a course. And we do that because it's possible that word has gotten out that a particular instructor goes easier on student-athletes or that a particular um, course is just favorable for student-athletes, and um, that could be a potential sign that there's some academic misconduct going on. So it's just uh, sort of a flag of something that we would investigate further. So our threshold for sort of following up on something would be if there's uh, 10% of student-athletes Um, in a course or a section of course and of course we always tell the faculty that doesn't mean you know you've done anything wrong this is just something that we're monitoring and and would follow up on
0: and that's a that's something that's uh, consistently done across the sec yes okay yes that yep it seems like a good way to flag potential issues
1: yes because we know that sometimes faculty don't always um, treat
0: student-athletes the same as they um, treat students, and, and that's
1: how it it needs to be.
0: Well, in our remaining uh, few minutes together, I want to shift gears and and talk about the common interest that you and I have regarding yes, protecting emerging athlete data and also the privacy issues around athlete data data. Tell us how you first became aware of these important challenges.
1: I became aware of this challenge um, through a um, request to do a research project on our student-athletes, and this project was going to be um, very comprehensive. It, it, the investigators wanted to study all student-athletes, and they wanted to use um, the, all their medical records and all really any data that was collected on our, our student-athletes. And having been a student athlete, I sort of shifted back, you know, (laughs) a long time and and thought how weird it would have been to sort of be, just because you're a student athlete, be treated like you're a lab rat, right? It just kind of was thinking about sort of how that experience would seem to a student athlete. And that really just got me thinking about um, what are the rights of, of student-athletes when it comes to their data and all the data that's collected on them, you know, who who does that really belong to and who has ownership of that? Um, and as I started thinking about that and sort of exploring that issue in those topics, um, um, it occurred to me that these things have been um, sort of raised in the professional realm, professional sports leagues have been talking about these issues, but I really the conversation um, hasn't shifted to um, collegiate athletes. And so um, it's something that we need to be thinking about and, and locally we really um, started thinking about it and, and co- trying to come up with the ways to um, address those issues.
0: Yeah, I think we're at the very early stages of thinking about uh, the impact that this has on, on college athletes and even just their ability to provide consent. They may know that yes. they, they need to have uh, the coach measure their heart rate in the middle of the practice, but they want to know exactly what that data is going to be used for going forward.
1: Yes, right. And and I think what, um, maybe I didn't say it very well, but I think what people um, often don't appreciate is just how different the environment is in an athletics program so much of as a student athlete is asked of you and expected of you and you're aware of that and you want to fulfill your obligations and if you're on scholarship keep your scholarship and all all of that so um, the issue of whether you're able to give truly voluntary consent is a really important one and one that needs to be um, really thought out how you can, can structure that consent process so that that
0: student athlete um, really feels like
1: the consent is voluntary and it is, truly is
0: voluntary. I think that's a great point. And certainly I think it should be one of those issues that uh, should be on the agenda for all, all of college uh, athletic programs and national governing bodies. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us for another week of thinking about college athletics from the 30,000 foot perspective. In case this is the first time you are joining us, the podcast drops every Thursday morning. You can listen to previous guests and topics on eight different podcasting platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. Each week, I will strive to give you a deeper understanding of the complexities of higher education and intercollegiate athletics in the 21st century. Please also join me on Forbes.com for additional content and extended analysis. Have a great week.